Hey everybody, this is Jeff Pilsen of Foreigner, Dockin', M Machine, Black Swan, bunch of other bands, and you're listening to my good friend Jay Scott on the Hook Rock. Rocks. I'm your host, Jay Scott. Thanks again for tuning in and listening and letting myself and the guests I have talk about their music, anything related to rock music, hard rock, heavy metal, all the subgenres. We, we try to cover the best we can, and hopefully you guys enjoy it. I know we've had a, uh, a great month with some great episodes and some great feedback like the Year-end celebration of 2021, where we did almost six hours of discussion of the 160 albums that we talked about. We did a top 30, but we had a lot of contributions, and it was just an amazing episode, and people really seemed to connect with it, which we enjoy, and we enjoy hearing how you guys are always like, are you going to release that episode? When are you going to release that episode? So thank you very much for that. It really has been uh, everything that we... uh, we put into it, which is a lot of thought, a lot of love, because we all, you know, Chris and I, who do, does the show with me, love music, love new music, and we enjoy talking about it. So if you haven't checked those out, look for part one and two of the top 30 album review of 2021. And again, it's not something that's like critics talking, it's music fans that just love music and want to tell you what's good and what we enjoy listening to. We also had a couple of great new music spotlights this month. We had The Warning, Georgia Thunderbolts, and Scarlet Rebels. So check out all those great emerging bands. Some really good stuff. Georgia Thunderbolts, great Southern band. Scarlet Rebels, a great band from the UK. And of course, The Warning, Three Sisters from Mexico, who just released their debut EP, back in October and they are just on their way to jump out of the stratosphere. Uh, They are a band that uh, you really need to check out. Also some other episodes too, as well. We just did uh, a great topic with Christian Eagle, the frequent contributor who visits the hook rocks about live nations concert 
revenue last year and where the future of live streaming is going. Also enjoy the conversations we did prior to the new year with Emerging Rock Bands, the great magazine that covers new rock out of the UK. And also one of my favorite episodes that we did is with Emer Reynolds, the director of the Phil Lynott documentary, the great singer from Thin Lizzy, Songs for a While I'm Away. Got a chance to talk with her while she was in Dublin about her approach to covering Phil and uh, the story she tells through the documentary. So please check out that as well. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a great network of music-related podcasts. Check out all my friends like Vinny Apice, Carmen Apice, and Ron Anesti. On the Hanging and Banging podcast, Mistress Carrie, Tom and Zeus on the number one Kiss podcast, Shout Out Loudcast, Martin Popoff, the Rock Historian, as well as Baco on Cobras and Fire. You can find them at PantheonPodcast.com. Also follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Pantheon Pods. You can follow The Hook Rocks wherever you podcast, any platform. We are available and ready for you to, to uh, listen to all the episodes we've done. So whether it's Google, Amazon, Spotify, or Apple, we are available. Don't forget to set your app to automatic download. So every time a new episode drops, boom, right to your phone. Follow us on Twitter at The Hook Rocks and on Facebook, The Hook Rocks. We've got a lot of stuff coming up, a lot of great new uh, episodes being developed. We've got a great one for you today. One of my favorite guests, one of your favorite guests, because every time we have this gentleman on. The feedback is incredible. And uh, we are going to be talking about another great guitarist, great guitar duo this time. We talked to Van Halen, the great custom guitar maker, the, the ultimate luthier back in time and how he influenced not just guitar playing, but guitar tone and sound and how they're built, as well as his first episode. Geez, that's got to be over a year ago or close to it where we talked about the future of guitar and where's guitar going. It was very pandemic-centric with the wonder of what's going to happen. There was a lot of issues with Gibson back then. So it looks like things are back on track, hopefully. But I'd like to welcome in from Hermosa Beach, Mike's Guitar Parlor, Mike Longacre. What's going on, man? How are you? Hey, happy end of January, Jay. It's great to talk to you again. Yes, only two more months of winter, but your, yeah. your winter seems to be going okay because you're on the you're at poolside right now drinking a margarita. Where yeah, we're I'm at, looking uh, out at the frozen tundra, <laughs> wondering when it's going to melt. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful place to live. I mean, I mean, I know every place can have its its beautiful things, but right now with with all our my friends, you know, calling about the cold and snows, and this is just crazy. It's you know, 65 degrees. It's it's climbing up on 11 o'clock in the morning. There's not a cloud in the sky and a little bit of a breeze. Yeah. It's right on the ocean here. So it's great to be back on. You always have really, really uh, interesting and fun topics. You know, we're a bunch, we're a bunch of geeks out there anyway. So yes. you climb on something that you like and uh, hope you get a chance to uh, give some information that you've heard that you, you know, were seeking out when you were younger or as time went by, like, how do they do that? Absolutely. I, you know, the, the Eddie Van Halen episode that we did, uh, was in our top five most listened to episodes last year. Oh, and that's great. I mean, it should be that guy. Just come on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of an easy topic to get listeners, but you also have to put the content in there too, as well. I mean, you know, after 10 minutes, if you're not really saying anything about 
right. you know, something people will tune out. But you did a great job of explaining the Brown sound and how he developed things and, you know, where oh, cool. he. Such a was, great subject you picked, you know, yeah. because everyone was talking about, you know, with the loss of Eddie, you know, what he had done and the, the styles of playing and everything, which is he did. He gave so much to us. But, you know, as, as a guitar builder myself, it was so fun to talk about or geek out about where that all came from. You know, no one was doing so much of the stuff he was doing. And then we all did it, <laughs> whether you did it with a screwdriver and a hammer, you know, chip pieces of your guitar away to put stuff in or whatever you had to get that thing. And it was really fun to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things that people talk about when they, when they refer to Van Halen one, the debut album is how much of a game changer that sound was. And, and, and they're absolutely right. But he also was a game changer with what you do, building custom guitars yeah, and sure. chasing tone and really doing that. Because when you look at pre, you know, Van Halen's debut and then after it was a, I almost think that that part of his life had more of an impact on music than the debut album did. Yeah, maybe he was just so curious about everything. Like just, you know, is it supposed to be hard? <laughs> he just kind of had that mentality and then would go out and try to figure it out, you know, because even when you didn't, you could accidentally come across things that were like, wow, look what happens when you do that. And I just think that's, that's, you know, the mother of invention is trying to come up with a, a way around something that's a bottleneck. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, we're going to be talking about a guitar duo that is, very well known to my listeners, very well known to all rock fans across the globe. And that is the Young Brothers, Malcolm and Angus Young from ACDC. Come on. I mean, right? That's, that's like pop, you know, back when you were a kid and it'd be like Desert Island, you get one album. That's the one. Back in Black is, is the one. I mean, it's what, the most, the highest selling rock album of all time? I think at least as I, as I last recall, it was like the second highest with, you know, 50 million units worldwide or something, but that was, you know, years ago. So right. who knows? It's probably 200 million. You know, I think it was probably 50 million just in the U S is what I meant. Right. But, uh, just, it's just a beast of an album and so much good stuff going on to get all of that. It was just everything at the right time. Engineer, producer, tone, players, technical ability, and, you know, even losing singers and getting singers back and everything and everything they had gone through to get to that place of proficiency. Just amazing sound. What's what's amazing to me is the perception that, the guitar parts are easy. You know, when you hear someone talk about who we just talked about, Eddie Van Halen or some of these other guitar players that, you know, dance up and down the fretboard and just yeah. you know, do all these, these cool, crazy things. ACDC was basically bare bones. A, a, basically everything starts with a riff. Well, most bands it does, but their riffs are so identifiable with who they yeah. are. It's blues just yeah. on steroids. Absolutely. But what people who, who do have that perception that 
it's, you know, it's not that good because it's too simple. Don't think about yeah. how identifiable those riffs are. And because of that, it's not simple. It's not easy. There is something to be said about the art of simplicity and how difficult it can be to make something sound simple. My son, who just had his first live performance over this past weekend, auditioned for the School Rock House Band. And one of the songs he had to learn was Thunderstruck, which is a big sports anthem and everything. He's like, Dad, I thought the beginning intro was going to be the most difficult part. But the rhythm section that Malcolm does is difficult in that it's a lot of feel and it's not uniform throughout the whole song. But it sounds like it is, but it's not. Two riffs here, three riffs here, two, four, three, two. And it's just very, it's complicated in how it's set up. And I I have long said that the feel of ACDC, I mean, forever, I've called them the four chord freight train because it, it's so driving and yeah, it's D's and E's and A's and G's and C add nines. And, you know, it's this big jangly, huge sound and it. And it is a lot of it is the, you know, the vocal content, the, the story behind it, the killer guitar tones and the two guys creating that for years and years and years, you know, and those simple things, I go back to when I was, you know, playing with, you know, bands in, in my, my auto repair shop at the end of the day. And it, it never failed. If you got into a room with a bunch of musicians for the first time and everybody just kind of gets to that place where they look at each other and go, what do you want to play? I don't know. What do you want to play? It would inevitably be me saying, we're going to do this. And I would just start any one of those songs on Back in Black. And at the end of that, you're ready to just destroy the world with those guys. It's just, it would create a unity because it was, like you said, tight, simple, easily um, related to. And everybody kind of knew it. It's almost in your genetic code to know the drums to any one of those songs and they were sounding simple, but none of it is. I love Phil Rudd's simplicity and perfect lock beat. It's total feel. Like you said, I mean, you know, there's so many drummers that would take that opportunity and overplay on those songs. Right. You know, with the fills and everything and Phil Rudd, no, I mean, I didn't mean to do a pun there, but Phil Rudd, yeah. every time you're waiting for that big fill that comes, he's just got it locked down and it just keeps it simple. And it's a great way to put song, it. Yeah, you know? just locked down like that thing. All the all the things I've you know listened to over all the years and magazines and everything. I love ACDC. And just listening to the engineers talk about their technical ability to be tight and together. Uh, it's, it's daunting to try to imagine to go into a studio and be that good. To, I think they did back in black in like six weeks, which is something like that. Just nutballs, you know, and, and they did it live like the Van Halen stuff, you know, whereas, you know, the, 
the previous album highway to hell was overdubs and you know doubling guitars and then they had to go back and add all the air between it because it was kind of too sterile at the time whereas back in black totally different sound like just electrified uh was done live without the singer right obviously it was they set everything down for him but just such a great way to record you know old school (laughs) when you look back at the early stuff you know whether it's the high voltage album dirty deeds album power ridge which i love let there be rock which i love you know there was a real rawness to their sound like almost almost like it was a wild horse that they couldn't tame that's where it came from for sure is all that early stuff yeah and it took mutt lang to come in on highway to hell to kind of refine not take away from the rawness but just kind of you know, sharpen or, or smooth the edges out a little bit. And, you know, obviously you have Back in Black and Highway to Hell, which are regarded as two of the biggest rock albums or greatest rock albums of all time. But I even love that Let There Be Rock and let that, you know, that Power Ridge sure. stuff too. I mean, some of that stuff on there is absolutely, you know, absolutely phenomenal, like Down Payment Blues. Yeah. But when I think of Malcolm and Angus Young, obviously Angus was the lead and Malcolm was the rhythm. To me, the most important member of the band was Malcolm, because Malcolm, you know, obviously Phil and Cliff, you know, were the, you know, the, the, you know, the bass and guitar player and the rhythm section. But Malcolm just had an extraordinary ability to write a simple riff that you absorbed and you made you want to put your fist in the air and dance at the same time. Yeah, just just unbelievable craft of you know like you said to have a riff and have the simplicity there and then to have lyricists that you know can deliver too you know they were going for that kind of raw bad boy image in those early days and they got you know the perfect <laughs> front man for that he was like you know he had stolen cars or whatever it was you know had assaulted a police officer he was like the perfect poster child for that band and and uh you know to be able to write those kind of lyrics that just lent itself to just letting it all hang out (laughs) also you know to have that feel because that's one of the things as my son was learning that song was you've got to place that riff perfectly you know when you're playing it it can't be you know, the drums and the and the riff got to all kind of be synergized with each other. And you yeah. can't play the riff too early and you can't play it too late. It's got to be right where it needs to be. And he's like, that's difficult for, you know, a kid his age to understand that. Yeah, like, for sure. there's there's a feel to it. You know, I think, you know, Rick Rubin, you know, he's he's been around enough big bands, too. He he called it the best rock band of all time. So, I mean, there's some proof right there. He wasn't even, you know, producing it or anything. It's just out there. And Mutt is no, you know, slouch at every single thing he did from Foreigner to Def Leppard and all of that stuff, kind of like in the same era, mm-hmm. just like knock stuff out of the park. But that was a live album. Whoa. Wow. Back in black. I mean. 
I mean, Keith Richards, when Malcolm Young died, basically said Malcolm was the greatest rhythm guitar player of all time. Yeah, that's just. I mean, that's that's high praise from one of the kings, you know, from him. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about the songwriting with them and you think about not, not the lyrics so much, but those riffs and how they were able to jump out of the speaker and grab people. Where did they, what was, in your opinion, what was their approach and how they wrote? Could, can you define that? Can you talk yeah, about that? Yeah, you know, I can, but it's all, this again, guys, out there in radio land or podcast land, it's, it, I love this band so passionately. This is the album, Black and Black. And so I did a lot of, you know, digging at the time, like, how do you do that? How do you take four chords and go a whole album and not have any of them sound the same? You know, when you have that kind of dynamic singer and everything, where does that song structure come from? Because I was an early writer at the time. And um, what it boiled down to is they wrote the songs from things they heard on the road. Again, I wasn't on a tour bus. It's just seeking it out and they they would come up with concepts of things that they heard like have a drink on me right those those sorts of things and from that they would write a song uh the riffs would come from that so the song had to kind of you know be written there from the beginning right what was the one uh you shook me all night long for instance i think i saw it on it was probably Howard Stern or something where he had Johnson on. And he said that that was his first song he ever wrote for the band. And he had just, you know, walked into that thing. It was like he was with the band for two months and they were recording or something crazy. And uh, he had a car shop, right? It's like me. He was a mechanic. He had started his own business and and, uh, they had asked him to come and audition for that. And he got the job and his first song out of the box was, you know, she was a fast machine, kept motor clean. And Malcolm, as it, as I understand said, you're writing songs about cars. And he's like, well, that's, you know, I was making this analogy to women and that was the first song he wrote for them. So that, that kind of is the genesis of all the songs that came from back in black were things that happened, uh, maybe a clever, you know, uh, saying, and then writing the song out from that and giving it to a guy like Malcolm who could come up with a hook that sounded representative of that. Have, have we ever learned about what Malcolm's approach was to finding those riffs or hearing those riffs in his head and, you know, sending it down to his fingers and hands and playing that because, he nails it like every time, like yeah, the riffs he comes up with. Alluding, I think it, and if you ever hear him talk, it's really awesome, especially after, you know, he had gone through, um, you know, about with alcoholism there in the middle of their career and, you know, taking time off and, you know, hated the idea of doing it and felt like he was letting everybody down. And, and in the end, he was still able to, uh, to get it done and come back and write. And just to hear him talk is so soft-spoken and 
you know, it's, it's what we do every album. It's always going to be the same because it's all we know how to do. And so those riffs that he was writing, just hearing him say it is really, it's a beautiful thing. You should, you should do a little research and just like, if you can find Malcolm talking about ACDC, he speaks entirely differently than the people in the band. He's just a way more almost, you know, reserved kind of guy, if that's possible with those guys, because they weren't when they were on the road and they were playing. He was not reserved. He was all, he always seemed to be comfortable being in the background and letting Angus and Brian or Bon have the spotlight. Yeah. You know, he very, he never really ventured far off from that drum kit. You know, like right on the right side of that drum kit, not really going too far out and just staying right there. I think he was comfortable with that. Yeah, I think he's the only one that is is still using cables, you know, because he I mean, his nephew is still doing that because he was right there. He didn't need to have this, you know, wireless thing being obnoxious to him. But uh, to your point, it's like that's how close he was to the to the drum riser and the, you know, he didn't have to have as much front of house as Angus where they got, you know, 10 stacks that he doesn't wear in ear monitors. And so when he walks across the stage, everything is balanced for him walking in front of that shit blowing out. It's amazing. And he can hear it all. And it's an interesting dynamic between the two brothers. You know, here's this reserved, you know, Malcolm Young, who's writing these riffs, these recognizable riffs. And then you've got Angus in this schoolboy outfit, you know, <laughs> using his fingers as the horns or the the hat that he wears. And, yeah. and, you know, doing like this Chuck Berry type of stroll across the stage, playing these incredible solos and wanting that attention. It's It's just interesting that that yin and yang between the two brothers. It's impossible to even like, when you see him, if you, let's just imagine you came to earth for the first time and you watched a couple of rock acts and then you went and saw him laying on the ground, doing like a little windmill and still doing those riffs, not sounding like a just complete wreck. It's amazing. You mentioned their blues influence. Of course, Chuck Berry is a huge influence. You can hear, I mean, Chuck Berry all over their music. Um, there's this footage with Malcolm and Angus playing with the Stones probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, It's fantastic. You know, and, and you can just tell that Mick and Keith are having a good time. Ron Wood's having a good time with them because I think they know that, you know, the lineage that, ACDC followed is very similar to the stones. When you think of the riffs and you think of the dynamic of the dual guitars and blues influences. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they both Malcolm and Angus and, and their older brother, I guess, who was in a rock band of his own, but uh, they, they actually had a huge musical family where everybody played and the music was always in there and they have, so they had a wide array of musical tastes from parents. And then, you know, I think the older brother, when he got into his rock band and, you know, they had, you know, 
journalists and stuff out in front of the house. That's what turned them on to trying to do something of their own. I think Angus was like 18 years old or something. Malcolm was like 20 when they started the band. It's amazing. As far as the chords go, you touched on it a little bit. It seems like, you know, to someone who's just the passing listener of music, you know, they'll hear an ACDC song and they'll say, oh, you hear one ACDC song, you've heard them all, which is so wrong to say. But as far as their chord structure, you know, was there a a theme or a, you know, I don't want to use the word trend, but, you know, something that they would really use as their base when they're writing those riffs? You know, that because Malcolm was writing so much, I mean, clearly even my own songs, you know, or anybody else out there, you, you try to get your own voice. And then once you have it, you can hear your, the threads of your actual fabric through all of your works, hopefully. I mean, that's, you want to have a definable thing that runs through all of it so you can be identified with it. You don't even need to hear the singer come on. You only need to hear three chords shifts from those guys to know it's them, you know, like Boston or anybody else. They, they relied more on their tone and multiple layers Whereas ACDC was to, to your point, chords, four chords. How do you, how do you not make everything sound the same? But it's, it was the riffs between everything and then clever wording and being at the right place at the right time. You know, the radio was ready for all those songs in 1980. As a guitar player using three chords, you would, feel that or seem to, or, you know, I'm, I don't play guitar, but y- using the three chords, you, you think that there's a lot of limitations on just doing that. How do, how do they overcome or how does a player overcome those limitations to, to have a different sound or rhythm in each song? That's another great point that we can just go look through the history of time. If we've only had seven chords to work with, and then you take, a finger off or put another one on to make it have a different color. You know, you, how can everything that's gone through the history of music not have things that overlap or, and then you get into lawsuits, right? <laughs> hey, that's my song from 10 years ago or whatever. But I think to your point, you know, he's using these big open jangling chords. Let's just say, you know, a, D, and E. And how do you not make D, A, and E or D, E, and, and D, and then A again? How come those don't overlap and sound the same? And I think it's just the riff. And then, of course, the, the melody line was never the same. And melody line is, you know, you could take away all of the music and it would still you'd still be able to follow in your head hearing Phil Rudd banging on that thing in the groove and hearing those big jangly chords. That's, that's the, the sexy part of ACDC's chord structure is that the simplicity lets you hear it. You could, you could have one guitar with no drums and bass and play any one of those songs, Shook Me All Night Long, Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution, any one of those, and your head would allow you to hear the bass and the drums and the singer playing along with you. That's, 
that is giant. That is a special place to be with music. That is so true. Because as you were leading up to that, I started playing the You Shook Me All Night Long or the, you know, the uh, Highway to Hell riff in my head. Yeah. And I hear the drums and the bass automatically. Just like lock. Yes. Truly is. uh, It's I mean, I called it the, the four chord freight train because you are in it when you are hearing that stuff and you don't have to even like ACDC. It's in your DNA. It was impossible to get away from it on the radio. And, you know, here we are 40 years later and you're, you're able to grab a hold of, you know, a guitar and you're watching your friend over there playing a song he loves from back in black and you don't even know how to play it. And you're like, Oh, it's just G D and A and C. But when you get it all going one direction, I don't care who you are. It is, it's infecting and a special thing. I, I, I'm just in awe of how much noise, even at low volume, that album can make you feel like you're listening to. How important was Malcolm's right hand and the way he played the strings, the way he struck the strings? I don't think people give enough credit to how much the right hand means to your tone. Yeah, there's they, those two guys worked so well off each other because they use totally different tones, totally different guitars with different tones, different tone settings on the amps and Malcolm's use of really heavy, heavy gauge strings. And he took the tremolos off his guitars and kept the tailpiece way back. So the string length was a huge part of his sound because the, you know, their, uh, the end point of the string was actually like three to four inches longer than what it was supposed to be. And it helped create all of that massive tone with heavy strings and volume and his right hand technique is what you were asking about truly. But I think most of that sound was, was in the guitar setup, the choice of pickup. And, you know, he went through all of the renditions of putting pickups in and taking them out and middle pickups. And then it was just like one volume, no switch and one Jack. That was the whole, the whole guitar, all those Gretsch, uh, the Firebirds or the double cut one, the hollow body, but uh, his right hand, he had impeccable time. I mean, it's just all there is to it. And he wrote the songs. So you kind of have your secret sauce of lock on your own song when you're playing it. To compare him to our last subject, Eddie Van Halen, it sounded like Malcolm was very similar in chasing tone and trying to figure out how to get that sound that he heard in his head. Oh, for sure. I mean, he was using, you know, uh, super basses like Marshall hundred watt and just crazy. Uh, And they got, you know, seven or eight of those freaking things on a regular show for him. And they both use ISO cabs and everything. Or they still do. Or, you know, his nephew plays. He's even got some of his old guitars are really cool to look at. Like sanded off all the red finish to the, you know, the maple. And it just looks so cool and raw. And just, you know, it's the tool for the job. It's like a giant hammer. (laughs) 
I wonder how he was able to think about and find that approach to guitar with the long strings and and having that define his tone. I'd be interested to see if there's ever a conversation of how he how he thought he of that or that. how he discovered yeah. that. I think you know that it was no secret that those Bigsby it wasn't a Bigsby tremolo. It was a a different, bigger, older model. I think those are sixty two. Gretches he used ish at least early 60s at best and the tremolo units of that era were abysmal at staying in tune and clearly big chords when something is out shows up like a sore thumb so I'm sure that was part of it especially as hard as he liked to hit whereas Angus the biggest surprise of all to me was his guitars, he uses 942s. And whenever I play an ACDC song with anything that's less than a 10, I hit it so hard and it the string will go sharp, you know, especially big G's and big E's at the end. And, and somehow he does not. I think it's just because of the sheer volume and technical light right hand. Where was Angus's tone? You know, how, what, how did, what defined his, or how did he play with that type of style to the ear into the tone of the guitar? That's, that's the hundred thousand dollar question, right? Is his, his whole thing is there's so much, it's so complicated and it's, it seems so simple because he doesn't use any distortion pedals or anything. It's just, it, it is really, Awesome. This is the, this is the magic of the whole conversation is he, he had, there was a a guy um, named Ken Schaefer back in the seventies that made this uh, Schaefer Vega diversity system. It was like the early uh, wireless systems and he built them for Pink Floyd for their big shows and Van Halen used them too, because there was a circuit in it that, was a a preamp that would boost the signal because during the wireless transition, it would drop out some of it. So it would change. It would be like an effect box sort of. And I think the way he figured that out was the first days in the, in uh, back and black recordings, he wasn't happy with the tone and, and Mutt was like, well, what's different? And he's like, I don't know. I'm not using the wireless system. Well, he goes, stick it in and put it on and it changed everything. So they use it even live now. I think that, that unit. And uh, the other cool thing he does, he doesn't ever use the tone, even though he's got the two pickups on all his SGs, the tones are dimed and the switch never gets moved. The only thing that moves is the volume from like eight to 10. And it goes from rhythm to lead. And uh, that's, that's really the magic of his tone is, you know, having these, the other cool thing is he had those uh, super rare Marshalls, the JTM fifties, which was like the transition to having a, a, um, the transformer was different in it because it was solid state, not tube. And they actually took some of the 
J45, JTM 45s and put, put a different transformer in them. So, so it was not as spongy and it just a little tighter for his particular tone. So, you know, all those hundred watt, I think the ones they modify the most are the like 1987 reissues. And he's got the real plexis and everything. I think they have like a hundred heads or something. Just crazy. They use nine to 15 amps per show. And uh, they got their own, their own amp guy. That's a full-time job that does all that stuff. I mean, again, these, these videos and informations are all out there to watch and they're just so fun. I just, these are all informations I've got from years of just geeking out on those guys and trying to come up with that elusive sound you're talking about. When I think of the songs, there's one song that they wrote in particular. They wrote a lot of songs about rock, you know, um, rock and roll, I know he's pollution, rock and roll singer and let there be rock. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was just going to get to. Let there be rock. There's, there's a lyric in that song that says, let there be sound, let there be light, let there be drums, let there be guitar, let there be rock. It's almost like that's their mantra. Yeah, it's the sermon that he's given everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what ACDC is really all about. It's pretty simple. It's pretty basic. It's, it's not rocket science. Yeah. Um, I also think of a band that has an album, a new emerging band that has an album coming out in February. And they went into the studio. You know, they've got their pedals and all this stuff and whatever they have. And the producer goes, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. And the guitar player who, who I have a good relationship with, was like, what do you mean? And he's like, we're just going to plug in. That's all we're going to do. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, you're just going to plug in and play. That's, that's it. And he said, coming out of how he used to do things into this was like freedom. Like yeah, it was just started for sure. Yeah. And it, it's interesting too. Like you said, they didn't use, they didn't use any effects. And that's why some of Angus's solos seem very chaotic and raw. It's because there's nothing to smooth the edge. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a mashup of all of it. Right. So they're, they're sound guys, everything, all of their amp, builders and everything that work with them they they work so hard at keeping everything completely consistent you know they when they bias tubes they do it by ear they don't use a machine they actually play a guitar through it and then they try to get the tubes get a little more voltage to them and they go through a lot of tubes but it helps that tone of angus just sounding like it's just gonna blow the head up and they do <laughs> that's why they have so many of them out there and then on the other side of the stage you got this guy just locking it down with you know um super bass heads and running it cleaner on top of it and then that guy at the soundboard that's doing the front of house they each one of them has two they have one cabinet underneath the stage that's mic'd and then they have a iso cab that's from another head and they blend that and then they do the same for Malcolm's and then they run that through the front of house and that 
so he deserves a lot of credit too because every time we go to a acdc show that sound is there for you and it's because they kept everything consistent from the record and not adding a lot of echo to fix stuff or reverb or anything it's just pure loud with you know your guitars and all angus's sgs have their own pickups and stuff in them but they're under eight ohm you know duncans and just old you know like maybe 1970 i think he's got a 67 sg or something so it's not like he's using some turbo guitar on top of it and Malcolm, is, his is just that one filtertron. It's crazy that all that noise comes out of those two guys. It has become a team, right, at this point, that really works to maintain that sound that you're expecting when you go see them live, you're expecting to hear on the albums. I mean, it's it's Malcolm and Angus, obviously, hearing the riff and the solo and playing it and writing it. But it's also these guys that are testing things and working on things to make sure that so hard they're doing it so. And it, it, to your point, like that, how does it something so simple? And you you listen to any of those tech guys talk about that stuff? They're like, this is the simplest rig I've ever worked, and it's the hardest job I've ever done because they they demand that it sounds like it always has. So all the amps they use these like japanese voltage conditioners that no matter where they go in the world they can run exactly the voltage they want because it's a 220 system but i think they found that you know they can get it to do what they need it to do at 236 or something there's some just you know elves in the black forest go and are you talking about you're talking about voltage 220 yeah okay And so before it gets to the heads, they condition the power to be exactly and the, you know, the, the rate of, of the voltage and everything is all controlled by this very sophisticated unit before it does anything. So that's the first line of defense, but it's to keep things consistently ACDC wherever they go, whether it's in the studio or in a little, you know, tiny 20,000 seat hall or a stadium. It's, you know, it's just a matter of whether using nine or, you know, 20 amps per guy. It's amazing how, because I I imagine it wasn't like that in the beginning, right? I mean, they had to use, they didn't have the means to have this team and have all this stuff to keep their sound the same through touring through playing and it's amazing how that took almost on a life of its own yeah. when when you think about it right i mean did they start doing that after the back and black tour did they start doing that after this album or whatever it was you know because they were probably just relying on their ear early on yeah i mean i think there's a huge i mean there's there's obviously vocally there's a huge difference between the previous like you were saying the high voltage and let there be rock albums and highway to hell. I mean, there was a lot. Once they brought Mutt in, you could tell that there was a, there was a transition of tone between 
those two albums. And they were almost one year apart all the way through, right? Like those, those first albums that they did, the, uh, I think they did the Australian one in 75 was the high voltage. And then they made it for, uh, then they did TNT. Those were both done in 75. And then they made the, the U S version worldwide of the high voltage. And then by the time they got to through dirty deeds, it was one, it was almost like April of one year, May, then June, then two albums in July. It really was crazy how, how much material they were putting out. And it was the same tone all the way through that stuff until back in black and that doing it live with uh, Tony Platt. So he engineered a bunch of stuff for a lot of people at the time. And I think he, uh, he was working with Mutt to get the tone in, in uh, highway to hell. And then when they did the live recording of back in black, it just, everything changed. The tone was just to me way brighter and, uh, kind of like that that thing i was saying where the tubes sound like they're just going to blow up every song it's amazing to keep you know the their i mean because the tone really is the sound is really the legacy right i mean all these songs are great but you know if they can't keep and maintain that style or that 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 sound which is their legacy it kind of all falls apart yeah yeah, even Brian Johnson at one point said, how do you follow up back in black? You know, it's like you hope even the fans are going to accept you as the new singer. And and uh, they did. And and it was just the right time and the sound and the songs. And even, you know, hearing the engineer has some great things that he says about the back in black recording and that all the songs, because they were all the same chords and everything, how does it not sound the same all the way through? And it's because Mutt and Tony were very, very much of the school of like, look, you can't have the same guitar tones on every song. You can't have the same keys, you know, so they would change a key of a song that was written or, you know, change the tempo of the song so that the the record had continuity, but it had dynamic and, just awesome. There's just have there's so much great stuff that came from that album for the the guy that wanted to be an engineer or produce or know how to talk to bands about getting them comfortable and everything about that album was amazing. Kind of like Van Halen one, you know, just set the tone for everything that had to come after it. <laughs> yeah, and you're talking about bands that are really completely polar opposites right totally well they you know they have blues and van halen just a different style right thank god (laughs) and eddie's always mentioned his favorite album is powerage and he loves the song down payment blues in fact i think that was the song him and wolfie bonded to over that song interesting so great as far as the the, you know, the volume of work and the volume of stuff that they've done and the popularity, you know, of songs like you shook me all night long and back in black and highway to hell. And those were not written to be hits either. Yeah, no, I think 
like even rock and roll ain't noise pollution was the album was already done they just wrote it in the studio <laughs> it's crazy i wish i wish i could do that do you think that without mutt lang they would have been able to achieve the legendary status that they achieved I don't know. That's a great question because, because everything was changing at the time, you know, that it was the right producer and the right engineer and the right new singer. that was writing the right new lyrics with the incredible, you know, thing that was ACDC's back line and all of that where the, you know, when I said the radio was ready for it, everyone just liked the songs at the time, you know? And I think if you would have changed any one of those things, who knows what would have happened? I like to, I like to fantasize. No, like it was a perfect storm for being the number one selling album of all time. I mean, really, it's just crazy. It's amazing how our era, (laughs) Well, it's amazing how they change singers because you think of examples like ACDC or Van Halen or Iron Maiden where they changed singers and they were still able to be as successful or more successful. More. Yeah. I mean, Highway to Hell, as good of an album as it became selling, it it wasn't a big seller when it came out until after Back in Black became a big seller. Then they bought that, then that whole rift of, oh, the, you know, Bon Scott album was better or, you know, you get the 50-50 thing. It's crazy, but it's all just ACDC. Right. It's just any one of those songs of all those songs you like the most from the older albums are equally as, as powerful and very ACDC, just letting it out loud. I think in those three cases, I'm sure there's more. I mean, there's Black Sabbath with Ozzy and Dio. But, you know, when when I think of those three bands, you know, Van Halen having their first number one album of 5150 after 1984. And then Maiden releasing Number of the Beast after Killers when Deano left. I think what's a common thread with bands that have success with two different singers is they don't change who they are as a band and, and, you know, the sound. I mean, Van Halen, people say, well, 5150 is all keyboards versus, but they were heading that way. You know, you listen to Diver Down, oh, yeah. it evolved into 1984. That's where Van Halen was going. And whether it's Sammy or Dave, it's still Eddie. Whether it's Brian or Bon, it's still Malcolm and Angus, you know, with, yes. that, with that sound. With, that's that's yeah. very true. You know, and when you think of Maiden, you think of those arrangements and those, yeah. you know, those fills and those and everything, all the stuff going on. Whereas some of the bands that maybe weren't successful, they were too relying, reliable on the singer being the face of the band and and uh, the sound and of it became a new identity. Yeah, right, right. When, you know, when, when you think of Back in Black and you think of this, what came after with For Those About to Rock and Flick of the Switch, like you said, you know, how do you follow Back in Black? The fact that they are just as popular today 
as they were in 1980 when that album released. Maybe they they haven't released that legacy album like that like it's considered now that that Hall of Fame album, but they still have maintained who they are. And I think that's why fans appreciate them so much because through all the changes through the decades, ACDC has been the one constant that you can always rely on. Yes. I mean, like I said, that's the desert out. That's the desert Island album for me, for sure. I mean, and it's, it's blues and it's, you know, the all seven chords in different order, you know, but it's the song structure and those anthemic, you shook me all night long and rock and roll ain't noise pollution and uh, hell's bells. Oh my God. Just every song. I used to just start that with the first song. If I was, you know, playing with a drummer and play the whole album, like one song after the other with the same gap between songs as your record had. It was just awesome. To this day, when I'm road testing a guitar that I built, or someone, you know, I'll set up a guitar and I'll plug it into just a messy amp that's going to make a very similar tone to, you know, ACDC. They're ready to just take the guitar home and change the world because those songs, as simple as we're saying, that beautiful simplicity, it there's something very special about what it does to your memory of hearing those songs for the first time and then hearing them for the hundred thousandth time when you're going to in and out burger at, you know, 12 o'clock at night with your friends and you're 20 years old. And God just was such a great uh, force in nature, that record. And I know we haven't said it yet, but we've definitely alluded to it. Writing something simple is probably more difficult than writing the arrangements in a rush song or a maiden song or stuff like, you know, bands like that, because the simplicity is what connects the listener. Right. And it's got to be appealing to the ears. It's got to surface into your brain, you know, and be absorbed and hear it and just be so catchy. And like you said, it, it, you know, once it's ingrained in your head, you can hear play, hear that riff of any ACDC song and you automatically hear the drums and the bass. It's almost like there's a radio, an ACDC radio in your head. Hmm. I think that's, that's the way that we like to imagine it. (laughs) I think I have it playing right now. (laughs) I swear to God, Jay, that record, I, I can't run that flag up the flagpole anymore than I do. There is, there's just nothing that makes me feel like that. You want to just run cars off the road to anything on that record. It's just powerful rock with everything sounds like the screws are coming out of it. The singer, the drums, the bass, the guitars, that it's even through the smallest, shittiest radio, it still sounds big. <laughs> When you were listening to this first in, in 1980 and absorbing it, did you and you know the the guys you hung out with have that? Well, this isn't as good as the Bond stuff. What was it like? No way. In that period of time, that was that was it. When that record came out, it it made me just want to be a rock star. 
there's just nothing that I can compare that back and black album to. And you mentioned that Highway to Hell really was not a good seller. I mean, they were pretty much, again, I was young back then, very young, so I don't really remember, but they were not considered a top tier band up until that. No, and they were, I mean, they were huge success over in Australia. And then they, you know, went into Europe and everything. But until, until they got the radio play of Back in Black, they didn't have not even a fraction of the notoriety. That record just catapulted them to everyone knew what ACDC was and was supposed to sound like. And then they looked back into the older stuff and got into it. There were a huge following of, of ACDC before Back in Black. I'm not suggesting that, but you can't even, it's not a fraction of what they became. Because we have the discussion now, oh, I don't listen to anything after Bond's albums and, and, uh, you know, it is a tragedy because there's a lot of great music. I mean, those stuff with Bond is awesome. It's incredible. But whether it's Back in Black or, you know, for those about to rock or Flick of the Switch, those are fantastic albums. I love those albums. For sure. I mean, they're all, they're all great. Again, it's it's apples and oranges. Remember, like the Def Leppard, it was kind of the same thing with Pete Willis, the guitar player. Oh man, I don't like anything after him. It's like really, good lord! It's a decade or you know two of incredible music, and it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Our society is just as we've seen in the last two years. Right, it's just kind of where we're at, but. I mean, can you imagine not wanting to listen to anything after Highway to Hell because it wasn't the same singer? Whoa. Yeah. That, what a the mess. song is the song. Greatness is defined in the songs, whether it's with a different singer or not. And to take joy away from yourself. because Bon Scott some- was the one that told the band members they should listen to this guy when he was with the, you know, what was it? It was called the... I can't remember. His band was called like the Georges or something. And, and they had played on a stage bonds, other band, and he had heard him sing and they had, you know, talked a little bit. And then Mutt said, Oh my God, we got to get this Brian Johnson guy in here. If you guys need another singer, this, this guy's amazing. And they had already heard his name from their own singer. So for people to say, you know, Bon Scott or nothing is Bon Scott had a huge part when he was gone. And the family of, as, as I have read again, this isn't, I wasn't some fly on the wall or something. I'm not that old, but um, the family of Bon Scott after that devastating loss said, you guys have to keep going when they wanted to quit and, you know, said Bon would not, want you to stop what you started and so all of those things it was such a huge momentum to try to do something and get it going and there was a bunch of people coming in and sounding like bond and you know that kind of thing as i understand but you know brian johnson comes in and you know has a beer with him and sings some cover song with him and that was it you know so there was no question in their mind, even though, you know, two months before they had buried their friend, 
and had to have still had a really, you know, heavy head and heart and bad taste in their mouth about even going on without the band. He was the front man and they did. And man, you know, two months later, six weeks later, the album was in a can is crazy. Just amazing timeline of tragedy, loss. We shouldn't even be a band anymore to the greatest album seller of all time done in six weeks. Just unbelievable. When you say it like that, I'm shaking my head because man, so many things have to happen in order yes. for that to be. And in, in, in normal circumstances, right? Yeah. And, Just to be a regular band that's going to do it. Yeah, and to do that and overcome all that stuff and Oh my god, that was and a half of it, right? They lost everything. They they had lost that singer. They had, you know, all the bullshit about the, you know, the media saying, oh, ACDC, you know, made the Night Stalker kill people and you know, the lawsuits and just so much stuff against them. And the, you know, the religious side saying you know, they're devil worshipers and everything. And it was against Christ devil's children, right? ACDC. When, (laughs) when all you had to do is look at a, in the back of a stereo or TV and that's where you saw it. It was like all that. I think their sister like has the claim to fame on that. It was like, she had this sewing machine and on the back it said ACDC, you know, high voltage. And that was where all that came from. And like, there's even video of, of Malcolm laughing about it. Like really guys. I mean, we were like 18 and 20 years old. We were looking for a band name that was like, you know, we were just high voltage all the time. And there it was on the back of our sister's sewing machine. And then she's like, God, you look like you're five years old, Angus. You know, why don't you just wear a schoolboy uniform and made a bunch of them and sewn them on that silly sewing machine. So all of that stuff, they, you know, that's what the media does, as we know. It's we all get to see it and be part of it, and that's unfortunate. But in the end, we got some really great albums out of Bon Scott and amazing music that'll last forever that everyone got to hear as a result of the mainstream back in black hitting hard and really being at the right place at the right time with the right producers and engineers and sound quality and song structure and great lyrics and a a singer that wasn't afraid to, you know, give up his auto repair shop (laughs) and come out and get together with these guys when they had lost something so precious to them and have it go to where it is. They're still around playing today. Good God. It's 2022. Mike, that's a perfect place to end. Uh, You are a rock star, my friend. Thank you so much for, opening up those archives of my brain and I just love them so much. It's going to be ACDC day in my guitar shop today. I'll tell you that. There you go. I re- I got a song request. Uh, after you d- get done playing back in black three times, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to request overdose. You got it. It's on. All right, Mike, tell everybody where they can find you down the pier and Hermosa beach and on social media. Yep. I'm right on the corner. Uh, before you hit the sand of pier Avenue and Hermosa beach at, 140 Pier Avenue. You can catch my website at at mikesguitar.com. That's spelled with the A T M I K E S guitar G U I T A R. And uh, 
it was really just a pleasure every single time. Jay, you're a amazing host. You have a great show and uh, your subject matter is always inspiring. Well, I appreciate the kind words, Mike. Thank you very much for doing this. Have a beautiful day, guys. Everyone, that's Mike Longacre at Mike's Guitar Parlor in Hermosa Beach. Custom guitars. Go check them out if you're in the area. I'm Jay Scott. This is another episode of the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy, take care of each other, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.